Let us prepare our hearts to hear God's word. Our Father, we have already been uh, led by you through these human instruments to rejoice in you and uh, exult in the fact that you are highly exalted and that our Lord Jesus is at the Father's right hand continually praying for us. We have shared in the joy of parents as they have expressed their aspirations and hopes for their sons and daughters. We have worshipped you with, with, with money because we believe that all of our true satisfaction and provision comes from you and we desire to build your kingdom. We have prayed prayers in anticipation that you hear and will answer. And now again as we come to that point in our worship service where we honor you by listening to you. We pray that your words will have their intended function in our lives. Lord, over and over again, I like Solomon of old, I, I pray. You who know each heart here and are able to deal with each heart. Because you are infinite and eternal, you can pay complete attention to each one of us as if we were the only one here and the only one that mattered. And so, God, I pray that you will continue your work of dealing with each heart according to their needs. Not even the needs that they see are sensed by the truest, deepest needs in their heart. No one but you, Lord, can satisfy the longings of our heart. So in the words of the songwriter, we say, fill me, overwhelm me, until I know your love deep in my heart. In Jesus' name, Amen. <clears throat> Many of you are aware that Pastor Sok and Savvy M just recently left for Cambodia to do their work of uh, training leaders there. And in his first prayer letter, he talked about some of the difficulties and the challenges that they are likely to expect there and encounter. And he quoted a, a Cambodian village farmer uh, from, a, from the local religious background as expressing his concerns about the preaching of the gospel. And he says this, Christian teaching is dangerous. The problem is that in Christianity, and these are his words, Jesus will clean your sins so people can just commit crimes and ask for forgiveness. In Buddhism, if you do wrong, there is karma, meaning consequences. So obviously in this person's mind, the preaching of the message of the gospel, that is salvation through faith totally apart from works, very logically provides an opportunity for this kind of uh, continuing to sin with impunity. Why? Because uh, God forgives us. And here's my question for you. Suppose you knew the Cambodian language. Suppose you were over there. And suppose this villager was willing to listen to you. How would you answer him? How would you explain to him that this is not what the gospel means while yet preserving the truth that we are saved totally apart from our works? Well, that's exactly the subject of Romans chapter 6. Because you see, Paul ended the fifth chapter of Romans. We looked at that last week by saying that wherever sin abounds or increases, grace increases even more. <laughs> Which, of course, raises the possibility of this kind of misunderstanding. For he begins Romans chapter 6, verse 1, with exactly the question of the Cambodian farmer. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Now, his first and immediate answer is, by no means. And in the original, the word means... Don't let the thought even get started in your mind. It is so completely contradictory. We died to sin. How can we live in any longer? That's his one sentence answer that he's going to amplify. You know, when we die, when we die physically, it's a decisive, permanent break with the physical world around us. 
And Paul saying something like that happened to you when you became follower of Jesus Christ. You died decisively to the whole domain of sin. What do you mean we can continue to sin? That, that's the kind of the expression. And then Paul suddenly thinks, but what if they don't understand? And so he amplifies it. He said, oh, don't you know? Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. Now Paul begins first of all by saying, don't you know? Four times in this passage he's either going to say, don't you know? Or he's going to say, because we know. Paul is addressing the mind, helping us to think clearly and accurately about certain things about our faith. And if the Roman Christians, and therefore you and I, grasp that, then we are not likely to be seduced by this lie that because grace abounds over sin, we can continue to sin with impunity. And so I'm going to ask you again to hang in there with me as we work our way through Paul's argument. Because, you see, when you and I grasp it, then we also will be able to say, because I know, and I will not give in to this lie. Don't be in a rush for practicalities. We, we are a pragmatic society that always wants the how-to books first. In the not too long from now, we'll be beginning our building here. Building over that area. And you know what? The first thing that's going to go up will not be a building, but a hole in the ground. A deep hole in the ground. For a long while, we'll be moving earth. There'll be steel rods going up here and there. And then they'll pour a huge slab... Totally impractical. The youth can't get into that building. There's nothing we'll be able to do there. It doesn't serve any purpose. But you know what? If you don't have that hole in the ground and don't have the slab, there will be no functional building. We can go ahead and build a building without the foundation. But the first time they run in there, you know what's going to happen. Everything's going to come collapsing around them. Tonight, Today I'm digging a hole, that's all. Romans chapter 6 is a big, huge hole in the ground to lay foundations upon which we will build a life of holiness. And so it's very important for us to be able to grasp that. You see, all these issues of sin and grace and truth and righteousness, we need to have rock-solid foundation truth that we understand properly if we're going to build an edifice that will remain. So what is it that we need to know? He said, don't you know that you were baptized into Christ, you were baptized into His death? See, when the Roman, Paul is saying, when you became a follower of Jesus Christ, which by the way, in the first century early church, was practically synonymous with baptism. Because baptism was a public declaration by which they locally identified themselves with the body of Christ. But here his focus is not on the ritual as much as on the fact that, he says, when you were united with Christ, here's what happened to you, you were united with Jesus Christ in his death. And you were united with Jesus Christ in his burial. What's the significance of that? Uh, you know, you know, when we go to funeral services, if we ever go to the gravesite, you know that at that time when the casket is lowered into the ground, most often I see families express a fresh wave of grief at that time. And they start sobbing. Why? Because that hole in the ground and that burial is a certain finality. It's over. All delusions are gone. They are dead. And Paul says, you died with Christ, we don't believe it, you were buried with him too. It's finished, it's done, it's absolutely certain, you died with Christ. 
But there's a so that to that. We were buried with him so that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too may live a new life or walk in newness of life because if you were united with him in his death, you are certainly united with him in his resurrection as well. Don't you know that, says Paul? And that phrase, uh, walk in newness of life, is one translation says so that we might take up a whole new way of living. And I was captured by that. You know, many of you know that I've been using periodically a lot of illustrations from photography. But if you look and listen to my sermons before the year 2000, you won't find one of them. Because something happened to me in the year 2000. Photography that until then was just kind of a point and shoot snapshot affair in my life that hardly took up any time. Became a hobby. Now when I walk anywhere, even if I don't have a camera with me, almost practically unconsciously, I'm analyzing everything that I see around me from its photographic perspective, looking at colors and forms and shapes and how could I take a photograph of this? I don't choose to do this. This has become a way of life with me and there is no way I can think of living without that anymore. It has become a way of life. Paul's saying, that's what he's capturing. He says, don't you know that you died with Christ, you were buried with Christ and you were raised with Christ and united with him so that you can take up a whole new way of living that will become second nature to you. That's the idea behind these words. He says, don't you know this? This is what's happened to you. Grace found you in your sin, but grace didn't leave you in your sin. The superabounding grace of God was so that you could live like this, united with Christ in His resurrection. All of that is what He meant in verse 2. We died to sin. How, how can we live in it any longer? Then He continues. <laughs> For we know, there it is again. He's going back to build, He's still building the hole. For we know. This time He's not saying, don't you know? He says, we know. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. So he's continuing to work out the implications of our death with Christ. He said our old self was crucified with Christ. Well, what's this old self? Remember last week we talked about the principle of solidarity that all of us are represented in Adam by virtue of being born and then it is possible to be in Christ Paul is referring back to that because he just finished talking about that in chapter 5. He says that when you became a follower of Christ and you were united with Christ in his death, this old self, you in Adam, died. You are no longer in solidarity with that Adam. And he said that happened so that the body of sin might be done away with. Now what is this phrase, the body of sin? The Christian faith has never believed that the body is evil. Other religions have. And even a form of Christian heresy called Gnosticism believed that. But in the Christian faith, the body is never shown as evil. What then does he mean by the body of sin? You see, the body though, is the instrument by which we relate to this external world. And that's true whether for good or for sin. We might think something, we might believe something, we might therefore will something, but that will is translated into action through our bodies. Either our feet going someplace, or our hands doing something, or our eyes looking at something, or our tongues doing something. The way in which we relate to this external world is through the members of our body. And Paul is applying that specifically to the issue of sin, and saying when it comes to sinning, this body then in itself is not sinful, 
becomes the instrument through which the sin is actually carried out in the world. And he says that body of sin has been done away with. The word done away with doesn't mean done away with here. So what does he mean done away with? It means in the original that reduced to a state of powerlessness. He is saying this, this members of your body that are the means by which you carry out your actions in this world. When it comes to the issue of sinful actions, he says their power has been broken so that you no longer have to sin. Paul is not saying you won't sin anymore. He's not saying you shouldn't sin anymore. He's not saying you won't sin anymore. But he's saying you don't have to sin anymore. Because the power. Until then he said, whatever your body gave, gave you the signals, you just did it. If it feels good, do it. People outside of the faith in Christ think of us often as not free. They are the ones that are free. What they don't know is they are under illusion. They are enslaved by their bodies. Always when people say to me, well, I can take it or leave it, I always say to them, show me that you can leave it. And they won't be able to. He says that power has been broken. We are no longer subject. So that we are no longer slaves to sin. You see, in those days, slaves, and the huge population of Rome was full of slaves, they had no will of their own. A slave did exactly what his master told him. Paul said, that was your condition before you became a follower of Christ. But because you were united with him in his death, you died to sin and this body is no longer your tyrant. You don't have to be enslaved to it anymore. Now, He makes one more point before he gets to the practical implication of this. He says, now if we died with Christ, he's still on that same theme. If we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know has now been added with we believe. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So what is he saying here? What new thing is he adding here? We see, when Jesus walked this earth, he did some amazing miracles, including raising people from the dead. Lazarus was raised from the dead. A couple of women had their children restored to them. But these were not resurrections. They were what we call resuscitations. These were dead people who came to life again, but they had to eventually die. Lazarus would die again. That boy, whoever was raised up, would die again. These were just resuscitations, not resurrections. He said, but when Jesus was raised from the dead, it wasn't just the resuscitation of a dead body. It was a whole new kind of coming to life. It was resurrection. Because he had triumphed over death. Sin had, death had no more power over him. Therefore, Jesus rose again, never to die again. That's the point that he's making here. Therefore, here's the point. If you and I have been united with Christ in his death and we are therefore united with him in his resurrection, guess what? That's a once and for all thing. We don't have to keep on going through this sequence in Adam, in Christ. You don't bounce back and forth like a volleyball out of Adam and into Christ and out of Christ and into Adam. You are out of Adam, you're into Christ, you have been united with him in his death, buried with him, raised with him once and for all. This power has been broken. Now, having established... He says, in the light of that, how ridiculous is it to say, let us sin because grace abounds. You get the point? That's his whole argument. Well, now that he's built the foundations, he says, okay, now you can do something with it. Now comes the practical exhortation. In the same way, count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. 
Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. Now, what's going on here? Uh, this is the heart. This is the heart core of Romans chapter 6. These three verses. So I'm going to take the time that it, that it, it needs. The, the word counting comes from the word realm of bookkeeping and accounting again. It, it's sort of the kind of stuff where we go through when you balance your home budget. I do it once a week. I try to do it once a week. And the purpose of that is to find out how much money you owe to your credit cards and how much money you have in the bank left and not. Get a, get a snapshot. Now, here's the important thing. Going through that exercise doesn't create any wealth. As a result of balancing your books, you're not going to find more money than there is in the bank account. Your debt isn't going to go down because of that exercise. All that it does is to show you how much money you actually have. And so when Paul's saying, count yourself, he's saying, go through this kind of reasoning exercise based on everything that I've told you right now. He's not asking us to imagine things that aren't true. He's not saying, pretend that you are dead. He says, no, instead, think through this process of what I've just finished saying to you. You are dead in Christ. You are buried with Christ. You have been raised with Christ. Newness of life is now a possibility. You do not have to sin. Think your way through these things. You don't have to create them. They are true. But you've got to take some time to think through them. Then he says, get specific. And now, you know, in order to, to drive home how this thing works, I'm going to do something that, I'm not an artist, but you know, good artists do what are called caricatures. Have you ever had somebody do a caricature of yourself? You can always recognize who the caricature is of. But you know that certain features are completely distorted. But they distort it in such a way to actually communicate something about that person. I'm actually going to do a caricature this morning of how this process works. It will be true, it will be accurate, but I'm going to distort certain parts of it so that you won't forget and get the message. Okay? The sin that I'm going to imagine for the moment, and I'm sure none of you are guilty of that, is the temptation to cheat on your income taxes. Okay? Oh, why did you all laugh? <laughs> Let's assume that you're sitting down to do your income tax, you're doing it on the computer, and there's this block of money that you got uh, that should be reported, but the government doesn't know about it. So the temptation is to not report it and make all that extra money and whatever you can do with it. So now imagine yourself, you're sitting at the keyboard, okay? How does this thing work in a case like that? The first thing Paul says is, before you type those numbers in order not type any numbers in, hit the tab bar to move to the next box. He said, before you die, think, think this way. I, as a follower of Christ, have been united with Jesus Christ in his death. I died to the whole world of sin. In fact, I am buried with Christ. It is a final decisive break. Not only that, because I have died with sin... The members of my body are no longer my slave. These fingers that are going to hit that tab button to pass over that. These eyes that are looking into that computer screen. And this mind that is thinking about what I can do with the rest of the money that I will save by this process. They are no longer my masters. I do not have to obey them anymore. Because I died with Christ and the body of sin has been destroyed. By the way, I am now united with Christ in his resurrection and I can begin to live a whole new way of living. And a whole new way of thinking about money and honesty and my income tax. 
In fact, I can take the members of this body and begin to offer them to God as instruments of righteousness. I can take these fingers and offer them to God as instruments of righteousness and type in that amount of money in the other column. I can in fact offer my eyes as instruments of righteousness as I look into that computer screen. I can offer my mind as an instrument of righteousness to God and start thinking not about all those things that I can get with that money, but thinking about God as the one who will supply all my needs and joy besides. Now tell me something, if you actually wait to go through that process, how likely is it that you'll hit that tab button and skip? That's the point. That's what Paul is saying. And you do that for every sin. Laziness, sloth, unwise eating, gossip, anger, lashing out with your tongue, reading what you shouldn't, pornography, whatever it is. Paul says, you can go through the same process. Reckon yourself. Do not offer. Instead offer. Remember those three words. Count or reckon. Don't offer, offer. And you can apply that to every single thing in our lives. Now, I've caricatured the process, but the truth is exactly correct. And then Paul concludes this with a promise. All of a sudden, he moves from an exhortation to a promise. Why? You do all of this because sin shall not be your master, because you're not under law, but you're under grace. All of a sudden, there's a promise in the midst. You know why? Because that, those words in the previous verses do not offer the parts of your body as instruments. In the original language, the word translated instrument is weapons. That underlines for us the fact that we are in warfare. This whole thing is serious because this is battleground. Our hands, our feet, our eyes, our bodies through which we express actions are weapons that can either be put into the hands of the devil or under the hands of Jesus. So we are in a battle. And then to give us encouragement for the battle, Paul says, and by the way, as you're fighting this, and it can be, Laborious. To have to go through this every time we come to a fork in the road, we're in a hundred forks in the road every day. But the beautiful thing is it can become second nature. We'll come to that in a minute. We need, we need something to bring joy into this thing. <laughs> and this is a promise that in this battle, sin shall not be your master. You're not under law, but you're under grace. Uh, I read about something that happened in the Second World War that illustrates this. A Scottish professor named MacDonald and a Scottish chaplain had both bailed out of an airplane behind German lines. They were put in a prison camp. A high wire fence separated the Americans from the British. MacDonald was put in the American barracks and the chaplain was housed with the Brits. Every day the two men would meet at the fence and exchange a greeting. Unknown to the guards, the Americans had a little homemade radio and were able to get the news from the outside, something more precious than food in a prison camp. Each day, MacDonald would make a, take a headline or two to the fence and share it with the chaplain in the ancient Gaelic language indecipherable to the Germans. One day, news came over the little radio that the German high command had surrendered and that the war was over. MacDonald took the news to his friends and stood it and watched him disappear into the British barracks. A moment later, a roar of celebration came from the barracks. Life in that camp was transformed. Men walked around singing and shouting, waving at the guards and even laughing at the dogs. Surrounded though they were by all the marks of their former imprisonment, they now knew the battle was already won and they were in fact free. I mean, can you imagine for a moment if you put yourself in the place of the captors? What's the matter with these guys? How come they're rejoicing like this? We're still in charge. They're still in prison. <laughs> there are fences all around. But they didn't know that they knew the battle was already won. 
You know, we've often heard the phrase, battles are fought to be won. This one is different. This battle has been won in order to be fought. Because Christ has already won the victory. He said, you can go through this movement. Faced our enemy as not people. Our enemy is Satan and sin in our bodies and the opportunities. And he says, faced with these hordes all around you, which can sometimes get weary. Be joyful. Be encouraged. Because the battle has already been won. So keep on fighting. <coughs> now this last statement, for sin sh- shall not be your master because you are not under law but under grace, sets up a second objection. Again, probably from Paul's uh, Jewish audience during his years of preaching in public. You see, because the Jewish people, having the law, they largely lived under obedience to that law, at least as far as the external behavior is concerned. Gentiles were people who were considered without a law. And so what his Jewish objectors would say, Paul, if people are not under the law, what's going to control their behavior? They're going to go haywire. So you Christians will be no different than the Gentiles if you say to me they have no law. It's just the same problem with a slightly different twist to it. Instead of saying, shall we sin because grace abounds, he says, shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? There's no law to control us. We're going to run amok. Remember the famous proverb, without a vision, where there's no vision, the people perish? That's a mistranslation. The word actually means where there is no revelation, the people run wild. He was referring to what happened in uh, Exodus, when Moses was up in the mountain and the Israelites went amok, building the golden calf. So that was their theology. It was from God. Where there is no law, the people run amok. So what do you mean? What's going to control the people of God? Paul says, let me tell you. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. There it is again. Don't you know? Ah, He's going back to the foundation. There was a big hole uncovered there. He's going to pour some more concrete. Don't you know? Let's think correctly about this. One, two. That when you offer yourselves to somebody to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. See, it was, it was a practice in Roman society in those days, that even a man who was not a slave, had the option of selling himself as a slave to avoid total financial disaster. And so Paul is picking up on that, saying, no, listen, each time you think like this, each time you come to this crossroads and you offer yourself and your body is instruments of unrighteousness because of all this twisted thinking about grace, you're actually become enslaved. It's like offering yourself up to a master and you're begging to be enslaved all over again. That's the point behind these verses. But he says it works the other way around too. Each time you yield your body by this process of thinking that we've talked about, reckoning, offering and not offering, you are becoming enslaved by God. You're becoming a slave to righteousness and to holiness as well. So that's the main point that he's making. And then very quickly, he reminds them of what was true of them so far. He said, but you Romans, thanks be to God, that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. So after having pointed out the dangers, he says, but I don't want to forget what has happened to you already. Because of your union with Christ, you have wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. Now I want to focus on that sentence for the... For the Lord, remainder of this message. That is an italics. Because it's critical. In addition to the kind of thinking we've talked about on the offering of our bodies, this is, this is another kind of offering. See, he talks first of all about teaching to which you were entrusted. Normally we talk about teaching that is entrusted to the people. Like I'm teaching you, or somebody else teaches you. The, the teaching is being entrusted to you. Paul says, no, he says, you have been entrusted to teaching. 
And the word entrusted there means handed over. He says, you as the Romans were handed over to what? Not to a people, you were handed over to teaching. And in the original language, that word teaching carries the idea of a body of systematized, systematic, thorough instruction. And the word form is the word called pattern or mold. You know, molds give shape to things. Like when we pour jello into a mold, it takes the shape of that. Put those three things together and you know what Paul is saying? He says, you Romans, you not only became followers of Christ, but you handed yourself over to some systematic teaching about your faith and allowed it to mold and shape you just like a mold. So you see, Paul is answering the question, what will control us if there is no law? It's not an external law that will control you. He said, but the systematic body of teaching and instruction about Christ and your faith, if you allow that to shape you and transform you, you will be controlled. And it's not just from the outside. He says, you wholeheartedly gave yourself to it. This kind of teaching, because it has to do with a relationship with Christ, produces within us the desire to be conformed as well. So there's both conformity from outside and transformation from within that is creating a whole new kind of person. And so in addition to the fact that we have, been died, we have died with Christ, have been buried with Christ, have been raised into newness of life, he says, you have committed yourself to this form of doctrine or teaching. And you know, this is where I want to give you an immediate application to our, to our church. Because we have various ways in which we teach, but we have one systematic pattern of teaching. In addition to this kind of exposition that takes place in the context of worship, we have developed what you know, what most of you know as class our Christian life and service seminars. So for the benefit of those of you who don't, and for a reminder of those of you who need to keep moving on, these are five classes, and they're all systematized. And it systematically moves you from first base to second base, to third base, to fourth base, all the way to fifth base. Each one of them is one four-hour class on a Sunday afternoon from three o'clock to seven o'clock. And their goal is to provide this kind of systematic instruction that you can hand yourself to, to allow it to shape you. And second base, second base which is following in Jesus' steps, is really all about Romans chapter 6, only I'll have three hours there to amplify. All I've done is dig the hole today and give you some idea of how we can build upon it. But there's so much more that we can say about it. And so, by the way, there's about 130 people who have finished first base who need to sign up for second base. And so far, only 24 of you have signed up. I'd encourage you, take advantage of this. Build upon Romans chapter 6. Provide an opportunity. And for those of you who've been through this, take it again. We've rewritten second base completely to make it intensely practical uh, so that we can uh, get as many handles as we can on this business of don't you know and uh, offering up your bodies, all that is involved in it. And for others of you who've not yet started on this journey, you start in first base. First base, it takes you to the front end of this. Remember, Paul kept saying, you died with Christ. You were buried with Christ. When did that happen? That is when they became followers of Christ. And first base is intended to help you to either begin that journey or get a good handle on it. Because in first base, you will learn about the essence of this gospel. You will learn about uh, baptism and communion and membership. What is that all about? Uh, and some other things that are related to that. This particular church and what it stands for. And so we just encourage you to sign up. That one, by the way, is on June the 4th. It's just one class from 3 o'clock to 7 o'clock. And then the second base, those of you who are eligible and those of you who have taken it again, we'd encourage you to do that. By the way, we're also offering fourth base on June the 11th. That is another part of this molding and shaping, only this has to do with focusing outward. So when you sign up for something like this, it's one of the ways in which you're obeying what Paul says is true about the Roman church. You handed yourself over to some systematic teaching 
that is able to function like a mold to shape and to mold. Paul's almost finished with that. He finishes and then with these words. I put this in human terms, all this business about slavery and stuff like that. Because you're weak in your natural self. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impunity and to impurity and to ever increasing wickedness. So now offer them in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? These things, those things result in death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. This is why this whole, these last verses are easy to understand. They just underline how serious all of this is. Because you see, we're actually involved in a process that will either spiral downward or spiral upward with two awesome consequences at the end. Basically, Paul is saying, each time you make this error of thinking that just because where sin increases, grace increases all the more, and because you're not under law, you can keep sinning, and all these perversions of grace, each time you do that, he said, you are continually offering your bodies to be enslaved, and it's going to get easier the next time to do the same thing. And you will be spiraling downward, and the end of that life will be a life of death, eternal separation from God. And he said, don't console yourself by some statement about, well, I believe in grace and things like that. The process is what determines where you are. On the other hand, he says, if you continue each time you come to that fork in the road, and each time you begin to say to yourself, I have, been, I have died with Christ, I am buried with Christ, I am raised again with Christ, I can take up a whole new way of living. The members of my body are instruments of righteousness. I can choose to offer up the members of my body as instruments of righteousness. I will count myself dead to sin. I will not offer them up. And each time you do that, says Paul, it's going to get easier the next time. And you will be locked yourself into an upward spiral of righteousness leading to holiness, leading to eternal life. That last verse, by the way, is really speaking to Christians. Wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. The assurance of eternal life is not because of something you did in the past. The assurance of eternal life is this process of increasing righteousness and holiness as you keep leading yourself. But, but the crux here is the fact that these things can become second nature to us. Listen to this story. During my college years, it made no sense to stop at red traffic lights when there was clearly no traffic around. Some of us are like that well beyond college, maybe. Eh? And he said, I would stop just long enough to check for cars... And then proceed. My stops became shorter and shorter and eventually I no longer stopped at all. I checked out the landscape well in advance and if no cars were coming, I proceeded full speed through the red light. One day something changed all of that and I have never ran a red light since. I was approaching an isolated light in an area where there was rarely traffic even in busy times. I had already checked out the landscape and was near the empty intersection and ready to go through it when a car topped the hill to my left. It was too far away to pose any threat and I could have easily gone right through. The only problem was it was a police car. But that is not what changed my ways. Because I got the car stopped and received no more punishment than a dirty glance from the policeman. What scared me enough to put an end to my habit was what occurred in the split second between spotting the patrol car and getting the car stopped. Listen to this carefully. In that instant, my foot moved from the gas pedal to the brake pedal 
and then without my even willing it, it moved back to the gas pedal. I had trained my mind to respond. I had continually ignored what had once been a clear signal to stop. And as a result, that signal was no longer clear. Do you see what he's saying? He could will to move from the gas pedal to the brake pedal when he saw the cop. Without even his willing it, it moved back to the gas pedal. Because that's what he had done for so long. That's what Paul's talking about. That's why it is serious. Keep on yielding the members of your body as instruments of righteousness. And you will train your mind to respond reflexively. It will truly be taking up a whole new way of life. As we were singing that song, one line struck me. Lord, I've come to know the weaknesses I see in me will be stripped away by the power of your love. And so that's my blessing for you. May you indeed come to know that. Paul kept saying over and again, don't you know, don't you know. And so I bless you with the kind of experiential knowledge of the truth that will just sink deep shafts into your heart. And that those live and vital dimensions of Christ's resurrected life will slowly begin to push their way up through your lives and then squelch the life out of all of those weaknesses and sins. May the power of his love indeed sweep away those sins in your life. Go in Jesus' name.